0: Great price. So Jesus said this in Matthew 13, he said again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. And so that's, you know, just the value, of course, of knowing Jesus, uh, knowing his teaching, it's better than anything else. Amen. Amen. So why don't you go ahead, turn to your neighbor, remind him you love him, remind him God loves him. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, I'm glad you all, uh made it out tonight. I know many in the church have been under the weather. Um, I know I mean just thinking of people regular here on Wednesday I you know Letty's been under the weather, Vicky's under the weather, Melissa's under the weather, my dad's under the weather. S- more people are under the weather, and I'm sure there's others in the church that are under the weather that I'm just not aware of. So I just want to before we get into uh, the word, why don't we just uh, lift up everyone who's not feeling well going through cold or whatever it may be. Heavenly Father, we just uh, are aware of those we love here in the church, Lord, who aren't feeling well. They're going through colds, flu symptoms, whatever it may be. Lord Jesus, we just ask that you be with them right now, wherever they're at, Lord, in their rooms, in their homes, Lord. We ask that you would remove that cold, that virus, those symptoms from their body, that you would strengthen them, that you give them peace, that they would have a good night's rest, and that they'd wake up tomorrow feeling well and strong. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that your body, Lord, you said you carried our sickness, you bore our disease, Lord. By your stripes we are healed and whole. So we look to you, Jesus, and we thank you, Lord, for health and strength, for the bones of every member here in Mission City Church. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen. Amen. All right, well, I'm going to be doing something Uh, on the first two Wednesdays of every month this year, and that is I'm going to be teaching through the book of Proverbs, through the book of Proverbs. And so this evening, uh, what I really want to do is just have an introduction to the book of Proverbs. So we're going to read several different Proverbs, but we're primarily just going to expand off of the first verse of the book of Proverbs. And before we get there, you know, the book of Proverbs... uh, For me, actually, it it was one of the first books I really studied often because when I was in junior high, high school, um, you know, I had read the New Testament and parts of the Old Testament, but one thing, uh, you know, I was told at that age was, um, you know, there's 31 Proverbs, so you can read one a day, right? So I remember, you know, I don't know what grades it was, but I read through the Proverbs probably 10, 12 times in a year or two years over the course of a couple years, and I really felt it was uh, foundational just in terms of basic uh, godly wit- living, wisdom, instruction, and, and it was really helpful to me at that point of life. So I'm grateful for the book of Proverbs, and I think that it's beneficial at any age of life, at any you know, stage of life we're going through. And so that's why I really want to take time this year and dive into it. So, you know, the book of Proverbs... It sits right near the center of the Bible, right? Right after the book of Psalms. So it's been deemed so beneficial to the Christian life that a lot of times in the production of Bibles, people produce Bibles that are the New Testament plus the Psalms and the Proverbs, right? That are like included as the appendix to the New Testament. So we might say that the Psalms and Proverbs are the beating heart of the Bible in that they sit right near the center of Scripture. One is the right ventricle and the other the left. One sets the beat for our emotional life, the Psalms, and the other sets the beat for our practical living, the Proverbs. And as the truths of these two books get pumped throughout our body, you know, we live emotionally healthy lives, we live intellectually healthy and thriving lives, we, we live a life that is in line with the heart of God, We live a life that is alive, that is moving, that is flourishing in God's wisdom. So as where Psalms can guide God's people in their prayers and and helps, helps them rightly understand and process their emotions, Proverbs gives guidance as we get up from our knees in prayer and begin to live our lives before God and others. It gives very practical advice. Sometimes it's easy to understand and other times it's not. You know, in fact, in the beginning of Proverbs, it says that some of the Proverbs are enigmas and riddles. Um, but a lot of it is, you know, pretty, I think, uh, easy for someone even who is young to grasp onto. And it helps us, um, you know, in our interactions with others, in our a- everyday pursuits. Whether taking the form of a long lecture or a short little saying, the book of Proverbs' ultimate aim is to have its hearers walk in the fear of the Lord. That, it says, is the beginning of wisdom, and is manifold wisdom in every area of our life. So, the book of Proverbs shows us how to walk in wisdom relationally, financially, physically, and spiritually. Many have, uh, as I mentioned, they've, they've seen the book of Proverbs almost as a natural monthly devotional within the Bible. And, um, you know, because the Proverbs are designed to be meditated upon and memorized, having a season in life where one reads through the book multiple times can really be very healthy and foundational. And revisiting it through life will always keep our wisdom sharp and always growing. Ellen Davis says this about the Proverbs. She says, in short, the Proverbs are instruction in the art of living well. The Proverbs are spiritual guides for ordinary people on an ordinary day when water does not pour forth from rocks and angels do not come to lunch. Of course, reference to angels coming to lunch with Abraham or or, or rocks pouring forth water in the time of Moses. Most of the times we're not living with those kind of supernatural miracles, right? And we just need advice on (laughs) the grit and grind of life. And that's what the Proverbs gives us. So, Proverbs really is an invitation to live the blessed life amidst the ordinary, a life saturated with heavenly wisdom, and so lifted up you know, into really the life of God. I want to read you something I read even uh, this last Sunday. It's Proverbs 3, verse 13. It says this, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain of her is better than... blessed amen so that's what I, I want all of us to be like that I want us you know to, to be I was all want us all to be on ways of pleasantness to walk on paths of Shalom on wholeness I, I want us all to be you know filled with the tree of life and, and and people would call us blessed when they look at us just because they see that our lives are holding on to the wisdom of God so what we're going to look at uh, tonight is really uh, who uh, wrote the book of Proverbs, when it was written, uh, what, you know, where the title comes from, what in fact is a proverb. And I want to do that first by looking at the first verse in the book. Proverbs 1 verse 1 says this, The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. Okay, so this is basically the heading for the book. And the first word in Hebrew is actually the word that we translate as proverb. In Hebrew, it's misle. Uh, And so the Hebrews, you know, they call this book Proverbs, just like we call it Proverbs, because a lot of times the name for their book was just the first word that occurred in the book. So, for instance, they call Genesis Bereshit, which simply means in the beginning, because that's the first Hebrew word they call um, Exodus Shemot which means names. It's the first word they call Leviticus via Chira, meaning, and he called, uh, because it gives 37 speeches where God is speaking to Moses, where we call it Leviticus because it has to do with a lot of uh, instructions for the Levites. But the point is, you know, the Hebrews would call the, the book by the first uh, name. It happens to be how we call Proverbs as well, Proverbs. And um, so what, what exactly is a proverb? Well, Essentially, a proverb is a short saying, it's often clever, and it offers wisdom in a memorable form. Webster's Dictionary defines a proverb like this. It says it is a brief, popular epigram or maxim. But the Hebrew sense of proverb is a little bit more expansive than that. Yes, it is that, uh, but many of the, uh, and many of the proverbs in the book of Proverbs are little, short, clever maxims. But other parts of Proverbs include longer admonitions and lectures on wisdom. In both of these forms, whether it's a long admonition on wisdom or whether it's a short, pithy saying concerning wisdom, both of them encompass the Hebrew idea of what a proverb is. And um, you know, it's also important to note that while some uh, proverbs are clear on the surface... Others need to be mined a little deeper to understand what they're saying. Uh, And so they're kind of like Jesus' parables. They're, they're, They're set in such a way where they're not immediately grasped, but someone needs to lead them, or they need to be really meditated upon in a deep way to kind of, unlock their meaning. They, they demand a, a, a deep reflection. They're, they're written so someone will deeply reflect on it, because God wants someone to deeply reflect on it, because in that deep reflection that's where transformation comes. So, so Arthur Pearson, he says this about Proverbs. He, he says, a proverb is a wise saying in which a few words are chosen instead of many, with a design to condense wisdom into a brief form, both to aid memory and stimulate study. Hence, proverbs are not only wise sayings, but dark sayings, parables, in which wisdom is disguised in a figurative or enigmatic form like a deep well from which instruction is to be drawn, or a rich mind from which it is to be dug. Only profound meditation will reveal what is hidden in these moral and spiritual maxims." Um, you know, others... Uh, emphasize how the book of Proverbs is, you know, because of its practical down-to-earth style, it, it, it is, you know, not just, you know, helps us mine out deep spiritual truths, but another aspect of Proverbs is it just gives really a road map to life. Jason LeBaxter, he says this, he says, Proverbs are meant to be, our pra- uh, to be to our practical life what the Psalms are to our devotional life. This is their general significance. Here are the words of the wise on the ways of the world. Here is homely wit for the daily walk, but it is human wit shot through with divine wisdom, and he who is well versed in it will be soundly guided and safely guarded. Through wisdom, one is able to read circumstances and interpret situations so as to act correctly, speak properly, and respond appropriately to each situation So that beneficial consequences ensue to self and to the community." So because Proverbs are concise and they're trying to condense a big truth in a little memorable saying, they are not always giving a full picture on every subject they are talking about. Rather, they are speaking the truth, but not always from a panoramic perspective. So this means that we need to gather together all of the Proverbs that speak about a particular subject and see how each of them inform one another. So, for instance, what I mean is you you just can't take a proverb and read it and then universalize it to every situation it might apply to and say that's how it applies to every single situation. No, it might apply differently. Let me give you an example. Proverbs 29.19 says something like this. It says this. It says, A servant will not be corrected by mere words. For though he understands, he will not respond. Well, one could easily read this as saying that all servants need to be treated strictly if you're going to get them to do what you desire because none of them listen to you. <laughs> Rather, it's really more so giving a, a general principle, a lot of servants act this way. But if you go back earlier and you read Proverbs 17 too, this is what else? it says about servants. It says a wise servant will rule over a son who causes shame and will share an inheritance among the brothers. So here we clearly see there are such things as a wise servant who will share an inheritance among the family, kind of like Abraham's servant Gehazi or Joseph in Potiphar's house. These men were servants who were corrected by mere words. So when we read these two Proverbs together, we can be guarded from wrongly interpreting each one of them. We need the whole counsel of God's Word to be able to rightly interpret each individual counsel. We need to be careful about taking things out of context. We can understand Proverbs 29 is only talking about servants with poor attitudes, maybe even most servants, but certainly not every single servant. In this sense, we need to be careful about universalizing any particular proverb. Proverbs focus on the general rule of how the world operates. And usually, Proverbs do not focus on the exceptions to that general rule. But there are two other books of wisdom that deal with exceptions. You know, Proverbs is giving us the general rule of wisdom. Well, then God is like, yeah, and there's also exceptions, so I'm going to give you two whole other books that deal with those kind of exceptions, and he gives us the book of Ecclesiastes, and he gives us the book of Job. So we can thank God for how things generally work out if we follow in the ways of wisdom, but also be aware that there are exceptions to the rule, so we guard ourselves from becoming legalistic and Pharisaic, when life doesn't seem to follow the general rule of wisdom for others. We just don't immediately you know, uh, treat them as, as if they're exceptional sinners or something like that. No, sometimes life is a little more messy and it is a little more complex, and so we need to handle every situation like that with wisdom, even when uh, things aren't necessarily following uh, the general uh, rule of how things normally go. I mean, I think You know, just thinking about a proverb a lot of people use is uh, "Train up the child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it." Now, that is generally true, right? Those who are trained in the in the ways of the Lord, when they grow up, they generally do not depart from that. But how many know there are exceptions to that, where where someone had a really good training in the Lord, they had really good parents, they had a really good church community. And yet, when they were older, what happened? Well, they departed from it. Why? Because there's still such things as, you know, people have really free choices that they can make in life. And so, they can still choose a path, even if they were guided down that right path, they can can still choose a path that is wrong for them, even though that is not generally the case that happened, of what happens, right? Okay. Um, So, you know, some of the Proverbs are similar to other ancient Proverbs of those who lived around Israel, and this should not surprise us seeing that nearly all cultures have had their own cherished Proverbs. In fact, you can just do like a Google search and like famous parables from each culture and they'll give you a whole list of stuff. Um, One uh, ancient Greek proverb from Hippocrates, who uh, was one of, uh, I, I think he was the founder of like ancient medicine and or, you know, at least uh, modern medicine even, he, he lived to be like 104 years old, and he said this, he said, let food be thy medicine, and medicine be thy food. And seeing that he lived to 104 years old, uh, it seems that he followed his advice, and it was a good proverbial uh, wisdom advice. <laughs> um, an, a modern American proverb that many know uh, come from uh, JFK's uh, inaugural address. Anyone remember JFK's Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. And it's become a proverbial saying that a lot of Americans are aware aware of, and and people on both sides of the political aisle, they can get behind, right? Well, well, the fact that some Solomon's Proverbs have some similarities to ancient Egyptian Proverbs, that shouldn't surprise us. The thing is, is that truth is truth, wherever it is found, for truth is always God's truth. And, you know, some people will say, um, we'll get to it when we get to Proverbs 24, they'll say, well, look, Solomon is just copying some ancient (laughs) Egyptian Proverbs. And uh, that is not the case, because they're not exactly the same. Uh, And they're written around the same time, so there's some debate whether... Uh, Solomon borrowed from the Egyptians, or the Egyptians borrowed from from Solomon. I, I'm sure, as Solomon is growing up in the court of King David, that he is surrounded by the very best teachers, the very best advisors. I'm sure he learns multiple languages, including Egyptian. He marries an Egyptian princess. Um, he's he's very well. Uh, he's very aware of. The, the wealth of wisdom from the surrounding nations around him. And, and I think what he does is, is he pulls out what is good from that wisdom and the, that truth, and he allows the Holy Spirit to purify that wisdom in a way that is even more holy for God's people. He, he plunders the wealth of the Egyptians, so to speak, by plundering the, the truths that are out there in the world and, and making them serve a divine purpose. One man says about this, he says, If Proverbs is the borrower of the Egyptian Proverbs here, the borrowing is not slavish but free and creative. Egyptian jewels, as at the Exodus, have been reset to their advantage by Israelite workmen and put to a finer use. So how about the Proverbs? What, where were they mainly supposed to be taught? Were they mainly supposed to be taught in the synagogue? No, they, they could have been taught in the synagogue, and I think they were taught in the synagogue. Uh, But their primary setting to be taught was actually the home, actually the home. And and this is why, you know, we need to take time to teach the Proverbs, especially to, to youth. And the primary instructors of the Proverbs are the father and the mother. In fact, after the introduction to the book, which is Proverbs 1, verse 1 through 7, this is what the next two verses say, Proverbs 1, verse 8. My son, this is the first lecture uh, of the mother and father, and and we'll see in the the first nine chapters there's ten lectures from them. And, And the first lecture is, My son, hear the instruction of your father, and do not forsake the law of your mother, for they will be a graceful ornament on your head and chains about your neck. You know, it's interesting that both the father and the mother are authoritative figures here. While the father would have been the head of the household, the mother was still authorized to instruct the children with authoritative teaching. Both father and mother were to be honored and obeyed by the child. In fact, in the last chapter, in in the last uh, uh, 22 verses of the book, uh, we see um, an acrostic on how the idealized wife and mother, what, what she does, and this is what, what, what it says about her in Proverbs 31, 26. She speaks with wisdom, and faithful instruction is on her tongue. So what does this show us? It shows us that we should seek to communicate the proverb, the truth of Proverbs to our children, whether we're a mother, whether we're a father, a grandmother, a grandfather, especially when they begin to hit the age of puberty, Yet these instructions are meant to be with us throughout all life. We never get to a place where we can set them aside and move past them. We always need to be reminded about this foundational wisdom. It can always sharpen us all throughout life. So this brings us now to, we see, you know, what a proverb is, who who, who primarily wrote it, um, you know, what the setting of the book was. How about the structure of the book? How was it? put together? Is there a divine structure to it? And like most of the books of the Bible, the answer is yes, there is a purposeful and there is a divine structure to this book. This book is constructed around seven different collections of sayings. How do we know that? Because the book itself tells us that. So, for instance, In chapter 1, verse 1, 10, verse 1, 22, verse 17, 24, verse 23, 25, verse 1, 30, verse 1, 31, verse 1, each of them begin by saying, talking about a new collection of sayings that are given. So if we are to be fully formed in God's wisdom, we are going to have to thoroughly digest each of the seven sections that are given to us in the book of Proverbs. Why is there seven sections? Well, the Bible is constantly, over and over again, in just about every single book of the Bible, it is built around sevens. Why? Because Genesis 1 is built around seven. It, it, it pictures for us a completeness. And God is saying here, I am offering you a, com, uh, a complete uh, wisdom. Proverbs 9.1 says this, Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. We might see each one of these collections as one of the seven pillars of wisdom. Uh, we have all, need, we uh, all have need uh, in these Proverbs to live a life of wisdom. Now, of course, we could say that there is an eighth collection of wisdom, which is the collection of the new creation wisdom, and that will come about in the greater Solomon, Jesus Christ. And that's a theme we'll turn to in a bit, that this this is a wisdom that is good for all generations of all time and how to live a good life here in the world, but Jesus adds another dimension, a new creational dimension to wisdom, and a lot of his teaching in the Gospels is based on that new creation teaching of wisdom. So the, the first collection in Proverbs, it consists of a prologue with ten lectures by the father and the mother. These are some of the longer Proverbs. not. It does contain some shorter sayings that are easy to memorize, but they're more in a lecture format that kind of string together a lot of verses. Well, collection two of the book of Proverbs, which is the biggest collection, which is from chapters 10 to 24, this is the Proverbs that a lot of people are primarily uh, familiar with because almost each verse is a standalone truth. Right? Almost each verse is a standalone sermon. That's why you could preach really through the book of Proverbs for years, because you could just take one truth from one proverb and do a whole message on it. And uh, those Proverbs were told are written by King Solomon, as well as uh, the first nine chapters. So the first 24 chapters were explicitly told are written by Solomon. Collection three is called the 30 Sayings of the Wise. Collection four is titled... These are also the sayings of the wise. Collection 5, it said these are Proverbs of Solomon that were collected during the time of Hezekiah. Collection 6 says these are the sayings of Agur. And Collection 7 saying the sayings of Lemuel, a king, an oracle that his mother taught him. So the last uh, book of the Bible, chapter 31, we could say is of King Lemuel, but it's actually by King Lemuel's mother. In many ways, it's one of uh, the few parts of the Bible that we could say it was written by a woman. So we will discuss these various collections at length throughout the journey through Proverbs. The first collection, chapters one through nine, are a bunch of lectures from mom and dad showing the value of wisdom. Wisdom is likened to a tree of life, yielding refreshing shade and delicious fruit. uh, Collection two, chapters 10 to 24, the Proverbs of Solomon, Um, and these proverbs enforce a moral principle in a few words, and so we're primarily going to focus on those collections, but we'll get through all seven collections. So, I want to turn now back to to the authors. We mentioned how there's Solomon, we've mentioned how uh, during the time of King Hezekiah, which was about 250 years after Solomon, they collected more of his sayings and put together another collection. How, you know, we have Agur, we have King Lemuel, Well, the primary author, the one who who pretty much has his fingerprint on the first 29 chapters of Proverbs, is Solomon. It is Solomon, and ultimately we can say that there is a divine author behind uh, the hand of all of those human authors, and that is the Holy Spirit. Um, But the final collection, it, it appears to be arranged during the time of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one of the great reforming kings. In the Bible, he was the 12th successor of King Solomon in the southern kingdom. He was one of the, the few kings in Judah's history that sought to reign according to the wisdom of Solomon. So, so Solomon said, uh, Hezekiah says, okay, let's get together all of Solomon's stuff. Let's put it together uh, in, in one book. That's what they did. And ultimately, this is the, the seedbed of our own book of Proverbs. So let's look at King Solomon a little bit more in depth. Of course, Solomon was King David's son as even the first verse of the book says, who took over the kingdom from uh, David after his death. He had to fight uh, through a little uh, bit with some of his older siblings, but he finally took the throne. And the story of Solomon's life is described in two different books. It's described in 1 Kings, and it's described in 2 Chronicles. It's kind of like how Jesus' story is told in four books, right? Well, Solomon's story was deemed so important... A lot of the same stories are told twice, just like Jesus. And I want to look at primarily, we'll look a little bit uh, at at both of the tellings. I want to look at 2 Chronicles first, though. 2 Chronicles 1, verse 6. This is what happens right after Solomon takes the throne at a young age. Um, You know, uh, we don't know exactly how old Solomon uh, was, tradition says he was still a teenager. This is what it says, uh, 2 Chronicles 1, verse 6. And Solomon went up uh, there. So he's at the tabernacle uh, that was in Gibeon at this time because he hadn't built the temple yet. So Moses' tabernacle was still in existence, and he would go to worship in Gibeon where Moses' tabernacle was. And it says this, And Solomon went up there to the bronze altar before the Lord, which was at the tabernacle of meeting, and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. That's a lot. And that night God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said to God, You have shown great mercy to David my father and have made me king in his place. Now, O Lord God, let your promise to David my father be established. For you have made me king over a people like the dust of the earth in multitude. Now give me wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people, for who can judge this great people of yours? Then God said to Solomon, Because this was in your heart, and you have not asked riches or wealth or honor or the life of your enemies, nor have you asked long life, but have asked wisdom and knowledge for yourself that you may judge my people over whom I have made you king, wisdom and knowledge are granted to you, and I will give you riches and wealth and honor, such as none of the kings have had who were before you, nor shall any after you have the like. So what does God say? He's saying, Solomon, you're going to be the greatest king in Israel's history. And it's all because of what you asked for. So what does God give? He gives Solomon beyond what he asks or imagines, right? He doesn't give to Solomon according uh, to his need, but he gives according to his riches and his glory. And and he pours out on Solomon such a massive amount of wisdom that there was no one before him or after him who who was as wise of him or who was as glorious. And you know, Solomon asking for wisdom is really a picture of what every person can do. You know that? And, and, and the thing is, is, if we truly ask in faith, like Solomon asked in faith for wisdom for what we need, the promise of Scripture is that he will indeed give us that wisdom. This is what James 1, 5 says. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Now a lot of people you know, say the book of James in many ways is almost like a, a New Testament Proverbs. It also gives sort of a lot of uh, interesting advice, uh, a lot of interesting metaphors and parallels to nature, kind of like Proverbs does. And and here we see at the very outset of James, we see this call uh, for everyone or anyone who lacks wisdom to ask of God, to ask in faith. And the promise is that God will pour it out in such a liberal way like he did with Solomon. You know, what immediately follows the story of Solomon asking for wisdom? And, you know, we read from 2 Chronicles 1, but the parallel is in 1 Kings chapter 3. And right after he asks God for wisdom in 1 Kings chapter 3 is an example of a difficult judicial case. Remember what the judicial case was? He had two harlots who came before him. We're told that both of those harlots lived together and each had a baby. Well, when one of the babies died, that baby was swapped in the middle of the night with the other baby, remember? And because both uh, women claimed the living baby was theirs, how could one possibly arrive at the correct answer of who was telling the truth? Could justice actually be administered in a case like that? Well, according to just the testimony of the two women, justice couldn't be administered. If justice was ever to be administered, the king needed to somehow bring out the motives of the heart in each woman. And that is exactly what Solomon does in the story. He calls for the baby to be split in half, and half of the baby to be given to one woman, and the other half to be given to the other woman. And when he sees the emotional response on the face of each woman, guess what? He knows who the real mother is, right? He is able to have discernment. You know, handling a case in that sort of way, where he could have the sort of wisdom to say, bring the baby here and let me cut it in two, that required wisdom from above. That required heavenly wisdom. And that is exactly what Solomon had. He had heavenly wisdom placed into his heart by God Almighty. In fact, in uh, Second Chronicles, where you know Second Chronicles chapters one through nine, it tells the story of Solomon. And at the end of his, his story in Second Chronicles nine twenty two, this is what it says concerning Solomon. It says, "So King Solomon surpassed all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. Wow, even even more than Pharaoh, right? Even more than all the great uh, kings over in Babylon, all over the place. And all the kings of the earth sought the presence of Solomon." to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. Wow. God placed the wisdom in Solomon's heart. It was a gift, right? It was not something Solomon could boast of, right? Solomon was simply to guard his heart and the precious gift that was placed there and stored that gift rightly. In fact, Let's look at just how large and immense the wisdom was that God placed in Solomon's heart. It says this in 1 Kings chapter 4, so the next chapter uh, after uh, his, his first judicial case. It says this in verse 29, "...and God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding, and largeness of heart like the sand on the seashore. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt." For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezrahite, and Heman, and Chalcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahal. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He spoke three thousand proverbs, and his songs were over one thousand and five. Also he spoke of trees from the cedar of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke also of animals, of birds, of creeping things, and of fish and men of all nations, from all the kings of the earth, who had heard of his wisdom, came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. <laughs> Amazing. You know, here we're told in verse 32 that he spoke 3,000 proverbs, and he wrote 1,005 songs. Now, in the book of Proverbs, there are 375 Proverbs proper, written by Solomon, in collection two. So those are the short one-liners uh, uh, kind of proverbs. Uh, you know, proverbs like, uh, an example, Proverbs 21, 19, better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and nagging wife, right? Those kind of proverbs. He wrote 300, I don't know why I pulled that out as an example, right? But that was the kind of 375 he, he wrote. Plus... <laughs> the longer lectures by the Father and, and Lady Wisdom. You know, so that, that, that means that we're totally wrote 3,000, but there's probably only five to 600 proverbs from Solomon's hand in the book of Proverbs. That means only, I don't know, 17 to 20% of the proverbs that Solomon actually wrote found their way to be included in Scripture. Okay? And, and in fact, all the songs that he wrote The 1,005, we only have one song, and maybe Psalm 72, maybe two songs. So the 1,003, uh, they didn't make it. (laughs) But we do have his greatest song, right? It is the song of songs, the song of all songs, the best song. And whatever Proverbs were providentially preserved, those 15 to 20% that made the cut, they were preserved because they are necessary to the people of God for our edification, for our growth in godliness, and we have all the wisdom we need in those Proverbs that were included. Yet, Solomon's wisdom was not solely recorded by means of Proverbs. He also wrote, as I've mentioned, Ecclesiastes and the Song of Songs. In those books, alongside of Psalms and Job, they constitute what is called the wisdom books of Scripture. Jews compared his three books of wisdom to the progression of wisdom and drawing near to the Lord. Proverbs, they said, is like the outer court of the temple. Ecclesiastes, the holy place. The song was the holy of holies where, where God dwelt. In Proverbs, one grows as a child as they learn the foundations and the basics of wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, they mature to understand that life is a fading flower and that there are exceptions to things in life. And finally, in the song, they learn that love alone remains. And it is the greatest thing to learn is to walk in the ways of love, that we should not look to things that are seen, but to things which are unseen and eternal. The highest wisdom to live from is from our beloved position in the inner chamber of the Lord. Being under Proverbs is like being under a guardian, teaching us the basics of life, and that is good and healthy and necessary. But we also ultimately must progress to the greater Solomon, Jesus Christ, and his song of songs, the greatest song, the song of love, which really is just a description of the gospel. Let's continue to look at the splendor of Solomon's wisdom in 1 Kings 10, verse 1. Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels that bore spices, very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. So Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing so difficult for the king that he could not explain it to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his servants, the service of his waiters and their apparel, his cupbearers and his entryway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. Then she said to the king, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe the words until I came and saw with my own eyes. And indeed, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity exceed the fame of which I heard. You know, as we spend time in the book of Proverbs and really meditate on the Proverbs and let them seep into our our lives, you know, we're going to have that same sort of response, right? Verse 8, Happy are your men, and happy are these your servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you, setting you on a throne of Israel, because the Lord has loved Israel forever. Therefore he made you king to do justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold, spices in great quantity, and precious stones. There never again came such abundance of spices as the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon also, the ships of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought great quantities of Almagwood and precious stones from Ophir. And the king made steps of the Almagwood for the house of the Lord and for the king's house, also harps and stringed instruments for singers. There never again came such Almagwood, nor has there ever uh, the like been seen to this day. So here we see the height of Solomon's kingdom was characterized by a glorious splendor and by a peace and people from all over the world, including many kings and queens, came to Israel to sit at his feet to hear his wisdom. You know, we're told if you read the life of Solomon and how long he reigned for 40 years, there was never a war that went on in the land of Israel. It was a time of peace. Everyone is sitting down under his own fig tree, under his own vine. They're rejoicing. It's really, in many ways, it characterized what the height of God's people was supposed to look like. And that's what's interesting is that Solomon is the 15th generation of the Jewish people. He's the 15th generation from Abraham. Uh, You can actually, uh, you read that in the book of Chronicles, you see he's the 15th, but also even in the genealogy of Jesus. You know how the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew is split into three 14s? The first 14 goes from Abraham to David. Well, who's in the 15th position? Solomon. And Jesus descends through Solomon in Matthew's genealogy there as well. He's in that genealogy. And so why is it important that he's the 15th generation? Well, because the Jews told time by the moon. Each month in their calendar is either 29 days or 30 days. Most of them, I think, are 29 days, and so when is uh, the the month begins with a new moon, right, when you don't see any part of the moon, and then it waxes until it's full strength on what day? The 15th, and then it wanes, and back to a new moon, uh, and, and the new month starts. Well, Uh, A lot of Jews, they understand this as Solomon being in the 15th generation, as the history of the Jews and the Jewish nation reaching the height of its glory there. It had never been as glorious before that time nor since that time. He represents the height of their glory and wisdom, the nation experiencing all of the blessings that David had gained for them. In a sense, it, it is a picture, a type and shadow of the church of Jesus Christ. We are living in the reign of the greater Solomon and the kingdom life should be waxing in full strength in our life, right? We don't just have the wisdom of Solomon. We have the wisdom of Jesus Christ. We have the mind of Jesus Christ. And so what we see described about the glory of Solomon ultimately can describe the glories of the disciples of Jesus Christ, right? This is what Jesus said about himself in Matthew 12, 42. The queen of the south, who is he talking about? The queen of Sheba will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, what? A greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is greater than Solomon. He is the wisdom that inspired Solomon. He is the one who wove Solomon together in his mother's womb. So the wisdom we need, even above Solomon's wisdom, is the wisdom that drips from Jesus' mouth. He too has many proverb-like sayings in his sermons and parables. And the wisdom of the greater Solomon must always inform how we read the wisdom of the lesser Solomon. Colossians 2, verse 3 says this, speaking of Jesus, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Jesus are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, right? You know, the primary theme of the book of Proverbs is this, that we are to marry Lady, Wisdom. Now, in in terms of put that in a New Testament understanding, we are to marry the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. But wisdom in the Old Testament is personified as lady wisdom, uh, partly because the word wisdom is, um, you know, the words in certain languages have genders, right? Well, the word wisdom in Hebrew, it's female. And so she's personified as lady wisdom. And... What we need is we need to marry Lady Wisdom and have her rule our lives. And one way to discern that that's the overarching structure and the main theme is by looking at the beginning and the end of the book. In Proverbs, in chapter 1, we see Lady Wisdom crying out in the streets for all to listen to her, especially the simple and foolish. We then see Lady Wisdom contrasted with Lady Folly through the next nine chapters, with invitations either to follow the path that leads to life or the path that leads to death. Well, at the end of the book of Proverbs, we see a celebration of an excellent wife. One man says of her, in in the drama of Proverbs, the excellent wife is Lady Wisdom from the earlier chapters. Her husband, the prince, now sits in the gates of the city. The prince has successfully resisted the seductions of the adulterous folly. He is chosen well. Together, the prince and his bride form the royal household. The book ends with the prince acknowledging Solomon's word, by me, Wisdom, kings reign. That's why we're told in Proverbs 7:4 to marry wisdom. In truth, Lady Wisdom is a unique woman who speaks with the passion of a prophet, reasons like a sage, exercises the authority of God, and honors all who cherish her. In this, she is a heavenly go-between uh, who mediates God's wisdom to humans. Thus, the son is enjoined to marry wisdom meaning he should become intimately acquainted with the Proverbs. So there's always these two paths in Proverbs. You know, you can either go down the path of Lady Wisdom that leads to pleasantness and to life, or you can go down the path of Lady Folly, which just leads to destruction and to death. Of course, speaking of of life or destruction, both in this life and in the life to come. I want to make... Uh, mention a few more things about the Proverbs. One is, is, is how is, uh, what form of literature is, is Proverbs? Well, it, it's, it's poetry. It, it utilizes poetry. You know, in the book of Hebrews, it says that God in times past, uh, that he spoke in various ways um, to the fathers. He spoke in various ways to the fathers. What does that mean? It means God doesn't always speak his revelation in the same way. Sometimes he spoke audibly, by visions, by dreams, to the prophets. He spoke face-to-face, we're told, uh, to Moses on top of Mount Sinai. Uh, He gave a great poetic imagination to King David, and Solomon was spoken to by having God's wisdom placed in his heart and being able to wisely observe nature and human relations in light of the divine wisdom that was placed in his heart. So, Ultimately, however God spoke in the various ways in which he spoke, we know that the authors of Scripture wrote, when they wrote, they were writing in a way that was inspired by God himself, so we can say their words are indeed the very words of God. Well, like the other wisdom books of the Bible, and most of what is in the prophetic books, the book of Proverbs was written in the form of poetry. That means we need to interpret it like we would interpret any other poetry. And one of the primary features of poetry in the Bible is something called parallelism. Parallelism, meaning two phrases or sentences are brought together into close connection with each other so that they can expand on their thought or modify their thought. So um, there are four types of parallelism in the book of Proverbs, and it helps us understand what they're saying. Let me just mention them. One is called synonymous parallelism meaning the second line of the pair repeats the idea of the first line. So for instance, in Proverbs 1 verse 20, it's an example of synonymous parallelism, where we're told this, wisdom calls aloud outside. She raises her voice in the open squares. It's just emphasizing the same point in a memorable fashion, showing us just how intent you know, uh, her crying out for people to listen to her is. There's also something called, anti- so you see a lot of synonymous parallelism, sort of repeating something in a similar way. There's something called antithetic parallelism, and that's the most common form in the Proverbs, where the second line is set in contrast to the first line. Uh, so, for instance, Proverbs 12.5, the thoughts of the righteous are right, but the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. Usually there's that but in the middle contrasting two different concepts. We have something called emblematic parallelism, where one line is figurative and the other is literal. Uh, So, for instance, um, Proverbs 11.22 says this, As a ring of gold in a swine's snout, so is a lovely woman who lacks discretion. So, synthetic parallelism is a form of synonymous parallelism, um, Here's the last uh, form of parallelism, synthetic parallelism. So an example of that would be Proverbs 15:3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping uh, watch on the evil and the good. It, it it just advances what is said in the first line in the second line, and so you have other forms of poetry in the Book of Proverbs too. For instance, the last part of Proverbs, the great poem on the virtuous woman. It's an alphabet poem, meaning it's an acrostic, meaning it takes all the letters of the Hebrew alphabet and it speaks something about the virtuous woman starting with A and ending with Z, or starting with Aleph and ending with Tav in the Hebrew sense. And, and so it's an acrostic. Her virtue is basically told to, to shine from A to Z, right? So that's how it ends, with, with a, a description of wisdom shining with every letter in the alphabet. So marry her already. Person who's reading the Book of Proverbs follow the ways of wisdom, right? Um, you know, another aspect of Hebrew poetry and throughout the Proverbs is its vivid images that it gives, right? So poetry does this often, especially in the Prophets. It does it in the Book of Hebrews. So we see, for instance, um, a leaky faucet, right, is compared to a quarrelsome wife. We see vinegar on teeth is compared to someone who is a lazy employee. We see the gold ring in the pig's snout compared to the uh, beautiful woman who is at the same time foolish. So these very vivid images that we get all throughout Proverbs help us memorize the teaching and, and help the truth really hit home for us. It, the, the God wants to paint a picture for us. We, we all understand what these pictures mean. He also gives many pictures of different social figures throughout the book of Proverbs. The fool who winks with his eyes the practical joker who's like someone casting around flaming arrows because he doesn't understand what his practical jokes are doing, the man who can't let things go but repeatedly harps on a matter even until good friends are separated, the dishonest man who spreads strife, the whisperer who separates friends, the one who boasts of giving gifts but never does and is compared to clouds that never give rain, We all know people like the social figures that abound throughout the book. In fact, we at times see ourselves in these figures, right? And we say, wait a second, I don't want to be like that guy. I need to make a correction. So in a sense, when we read Proverbs and when we are married to wisdom, Proverbs can help us on a path to repentance, right? It can help us have a clear vision on how God sees our actions, And it can give us a desire to change our thinking, repentance, and begin to walk the path that God desires for us. So the last thing I want to mention is how the Proverbs become profitable to us. In Proverbs 2, verse 1, it says this, My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you, so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. Yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her silver and search for her as for hidden uh, treasures. This is what we need to do. These eight things, receive, treasure, incline, apply, cry out, lift up, seek, search. If we do those things, then the wisdom will have a benefit to us, right? I think of the receiving my words and treasuring the commands. Again, we see that parallelism of of building off the first with the second in these four different couplets. And I think of Mary, where she treasured and pondered the word that Gabriel spoke to her in her heart. That's what we're supposed to do with the Proverbs. I think of inclining your ear and applying your heart. I think of Solomon, when he inclined his ear to wisdom and applied his heart to understanding, and, and the kingdom flourished in his midst when I think of crying out for discernment, lifting up your voice, I think of the father who had the demon-possessed boy, and he's crying out to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, right? We need to cry out with that sort of desire to, to believe and yet be helped even in our unbelief. To seek her as silver, to search for her as Hidden treasure makes me think of the man that I, I spoke of earlier about, the one who, who, when he found the pearl of great price, he sold everything and he just bought that pearl of great price. So if the wisdom is going to have an effect on us, we really need to meditate on it. We need to chew it. It needs to be like a, chick, a stick of a chewing gum where we just over and over and over ruminate on it and allow the flavors to seep into us and, and the understanding to, to enlarge. The last thing I want to say about it is this. Then we'll end. The, the book of Proverbs is used multiple times in the New Testament. So people say, oh, that's just Old Testament. We well, don't need to follow that. No, actually, you know, all of the Old Testament is profitable, right? It doesn't all come into the New Covenant or the New Testament in the same way but we can understand how it's of profit to us in various different ways. And what the authors of the New Testament say about the book of Proverbs is they say it's very useful for Christian living. So, for instance, Peter quotes it, James quotes it, Paul quotes it, and they all quote it speaking about a blessed Christian life. So, for instance, in 2 Peter 2.22, Peter says, he's speaking about false teachers, of them the Proverbs are true, a dog returns to its vomit, right? What, what was that? He's quoting Proverbs 26, 11. He's saying, yeah, these, these false teachers in your midst, yeah, they're dogs returning to their vomit. Um, you know, uh, uh, James, in James 4, verse 6 says this, but he gives more grace, therefore he says, and now he quotes the Proverbs, he quotes Proverbs 25 here, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is, you know, so he's he's in, he's um, uh, defending his statement with with a quote from the prophets about what the Christian life is supposed to look like. Therefore submit to God resist the devil and he will flee from you. Paul quotes from the Proverbs in the book of in several books. In fact, the book of Proverbs is quoted about 35 times or echoed 35 times in the New Testament. And when Paul is talking about the Christian life, and he most beautifully explains the Christian life in Romans chapter 12, at the end of Romans 12, he just quotes a long part of the book of Proverbs. He quotes um, Proverbs uh, 20, 25. So actually, James is quoting from Proverbs 3. But Paul quotes from Proverbs 25 when he says this in Romans 12, or 12.19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, now he's quoting Proverbs 25, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He's actually quoting Deuteronomy there. And then he quotes Proverbs in verse 20. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So what does this show us? As we read through the New Testament, We see all of the great apostles, Peter, James, Paul, even others, saying, use Proverbs, marry wisdom. This is a path of life. This is what the blessed life is going to look like. Of course, filter it all through the greater Solomon, Jesus Christ, and as you do, you know, your life is going to be walking in the right direction. So let let me pray for you. Father, we just thank you Uh, for the book of Proverbs. I thank you, Lord, as we begin to dig into chapter one and chapter two next Wednesday, Lord. I just thank you that each chapter we get into, Lord, just the truth of your wisdom, the truth of your word, I thank you that it just comes alive in each and every one of our hearts, Lord. And I just pray that each of us would even take time to pull up one or two Proverbs uh, from each chapter, Lord, and we would commit to meditate on it, that we would commit to chew on it, that we would commit just to to, to search it and to treasure it in our hearts, Lord. And Lord, that we would, we would put your word to the test, Lord, and we would see your word produ- produce a fruit in our lives. So Lord, I just thank you for that. I thank you, Lord, that we're going to be walking down the paths of wisdom here this year. We're going to marry Lady Wisdom, Lord, and and we're just married to you, Jesus, the great bridegroom. And we just thank you, Lord, that that as, as your proverb says in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, and in all your ways acknowledge you. You will direct our steps. So we thank you, Lord, that our steps are ordered by you. Our steps are directed by you. We give you all honor, all glory, all praise in Jesus' name. Amen.